Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we had a lot of fun because we interviewed one of my good friends and a Twitter uh, just dynamo as well, but a journalist for the New York Times and my CNN colleague, uh, Maggie Haberman. We get to talk about Washington, Afghanistan, and the Biden agenda, both in the States and abroad. But before we get to Maggie, I got to talk about what happened this week. And let me just say the cowardice of the United States Supreme Court. I know that Texas is actively seeking to reinstate Jim Crow in the ballot box, but they're also seeking to put Jim Baker in every woman's womb in Texas, too. In case you missed it, Texas passed a law in May that bans all abortions in Texas after six weeks. Six weeks, y'all. Do you know many, many women don't even know they're pregnant after six weeks, but that's a whole nother story. And to make things worse, the law allows private citizens to sue abortion providers and anyone else who helps a woman get an abortion after six weeks, which is most abortions. And in case you're wondering, private citizens don't actually have to know the person they're suing or actually even live in Texas. So what you'll have are blanket suits against abortion clinics under this law, afflictively ending abortions in Texas, making no exception for rape, incest, or the health of the mother. So, um, you know, Greg Abbott will be making all these decisions for your wife, daughter, child, whatever. Oh, and your Supreme Court opted not to stop this law from taking effect on September 1st, despite the most recent Supreme Court precedent prohibiting abortion bans prior to viability of the fetus, which the Supreme Court has decided is about 22 weeks or roughly five months into a pregnancy, not six weeks. You see, this is the new playbook for Republicans in state legislatures alongside voting rights restrictions. They've lost on the pandemic and the economy is recovering under Democrats. So the Republicans are going back to a trusted playbook of talking crime, border crossings and abortions, and they'll keep you from voting. See, that's the game plan. This is all the more reason why folks like me have been talking about court expansion and expanding the federal district and appellate courts as well. Absent that, state legislatures can have carte blanche to do what they want to do with your rights, and they own the courts that adjudicate those rights. And they're doing it while Democrats in Washington drag their feet on court nominations. But shout out to the Biden administration, I must say, for nominating quickly and filling seats and actually having a diverse bench. We just need more of that. So wake the hell up, y'all. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Maggie Haberman. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, 
Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have not only an amazing writer and journalist, but a good friend of mine. We haven't been able to catch up. I think the last time we were eating sushi at Blue Ribbon Sushi, I think it was. <laughs> you in have New an York. amazing memory. <laughs> <laughs> I have Maggie Haberman. What's going on, Mag? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How is quarantine life treating you? Are you still able to pump out? I think they said you had 500 bylines last year or something crazy like that. I think it was last year. It was a couple years ago. Uh, I definitely have not had that this year. I am technically on book leave, so I'm taking some time. But um, uh, Are you utilizing your leave I'm, to actually I'm, write? I'm, or are you? <laughs> except, for, except for the next couple of minutes with you. But yes, I am. In general, I've actually been pretty disciplined. So that's yeah, I appreciate your I appreciate your concern. <laughs> Occasionally, I go down a Twitter rabbit hole, but um, oh lord, yeah, so, it, yeah. it can but be. In, gen- it can in general, be. I've been pretty focused. You're, you're not missing anything in the news today, so don't. No, don't it seems start. so quiet. It's quiet. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, look, we we start each one of our episodes the same way, and it's a question that we ask so that we can get to know the people that we're interviewing, and then our our listeners can learn a little bit more about you than what they believe they know. So uh, we want you to walk us through the arc of your career. And you started your journalism career after college, at least, uh, covering the New York City Hall for The Post. Talk about how that beat has helped prepare you for the national political work you do now. I would say that the um, two things. One is that there was sort of a nationalizing of our politics that began in the first two years of the Obama administration a product of a, a sort of a tritting news environment, the foxification of a lot of the right wing media, and also just the, um, you know, it, a lot of a lot of issues that were playing nationally tended to become specific, even in local races. So I think that some of what was previously seen as either, you know, cultural issues or less political issues ended up getting bleeding into politics. Um, and that is kind of the bread and butter of tabloids. That's one thing. The other thing is, you know, the the rise of Donald Trump in our in our national politics, which really did begin in 2011 when he talked about running for president, didn't, but but did make uh, the question uh, that he was pushing of the idea that President Obama was not a legitimate president by questioning his birthplace. Um, he put that front and center and it, you know, lifted him to the top of the primary polls on the Republican side. And it's part of why he started at the top in 2015. So I think having covered him for the New York Post and the New York Daily News and at Politico prior to being at the Times, I think just gave me an understanding of how to cover not just him, but this sort of whole political philosophy that I think he's ushered into the Republican Party. Let's talk for a second, because I, I you know, you do have this uh, unique knowledge of New York and New York State. Can you talk about Governor Cuomo, his rise and fall and how astonishing that was just from a 50,000 foot view to see that type of without we don't have to go into the details, but at least from a from a, a perch, talk about how astonishing that was and how I told you that I, I never I mean, I just thought he was going to run for reelection. I never thought this would actually happen. It's pretty astonishing. Uh, and it it flipped quite quickly. Um, you know, the reasons that it's it was not surprising that he tried to keep going is that is generally his philosophy is to try to fight things out. It really should not have been that surprising that when it became clear that he was going to lose an impeachment vote, uh, 
he went in another direction and decided to leave on his own. Uh, it reminded me a lot of what he did in 2002 when he first ran for governor in New York. And at the time, he was basically coming in as a political interloper, not completely because his father had been governor of the state. He had worked on his father's campaigns. He was a known quantity. He had married a Kennedy, but he was trying to challenge in a primary the state controller, Carl McCall, who would have been the state's first black governor and uh, or the first black Democratic nominee and um, uh, and hoping to be the first black governor. And people were very offended that Cuomo sort of came in after working at HUD under Clinton. Cuomo ran a terrible campaign and he dropped out nine days before the primary, literally nine days, maybe it was 11. I don't want someone to fact check me, but it was, it was less than two weeks before the primary against McCall when it was clear he was going to lose. And even then it was after he tried to get as much as he could out of McCall campaign until he realized he had absolutely no leveraging position. So that I think informed what he ended up doing. But I will say that just given how unstoppable he had been in this state for so long that he's just kind of gone without a trace. We have. How did he lose control of the legislature? Cause that was the final, that was the, when the speaker of the house, I believe it's speaker Hastings, if I'm not mistaken, when he was the like assembly, when, yeah. the assembly, when he was like, yeah, nah, I'm not doing anything, cutting any deals. Yeah. It seemed like the next day this was over. I think that's correct. I mean, so the, the hasty statement I've been told by a bunch of Cuomo allies was, was pretty key in getting Cuomo to realize he didn't really have anything else to do in fighting it, there were two things. One is that the the report by the attorney general, Tish James, was really damning and damning to a degree that the Cuomo people did not expect. Now, they have said it was political. It's a hit job. They've said, but but just the, the facts that were laid out, even if you discounted, let's say, half the incidents, you know, in that were that were described in that report, which is what most people are trying to do, there were things that simply could not be explained away as, as just miscommunications or they're all out to get me. Um, and so I think that number one was the report came out and it gave a bunch of people who had been supporting him license to step away. Among them had been a lot of black lawmakers mm-hmm. um, who had basically been his base of support. Uh, the other group that fell away was unions. And when he lost those two legs of his political stool, he really didn't have anything to stand on anymore. So I, I jumped into Cuomo. I, I wanted to do a little bit more background, but one of the things that I didn't know about you is that you come from a, a, a journalism family. This is kind of like a family business for you. You're, if I'm not mistaken, your father was a longtime journalist for the New York Times, um, and your mother was a well-known media executive. So you are in the family business. What made you stay in this? Why, why isn't Maggie Haberman in medical school? Why didn't she become a doctor? Why, why is she not uh, doing something else with her life instead of chasing us politicos around the country? Great question. Um, so I do come from a, a line of journalists. Um, my mom's parents were both reporters. Um, actually, I think her mother might have just been an editor, but, um, but just a, just been an editor. Just, <laughs> just been an editor, but um, not a, just an editor. But uh, my editors will love my saying that. But um, but my grandfather, her her dad was a was a journalist. Um, when back in the like the heyday when there were you know a dozen different newspapers in in New York City, I did not want to be a journalist because. Um, well, for a lot of reasons, but one is that, uh, I mean, bluntly, um, it's not a profession that's generally easy on families. And that is what I had come up in. But I did want to be a writer. And when I got out of college, I couldn't get the only thing I've wanted to do since I was eight years old was be a writer. I could not get a job writing at a magazine. No one would hire me. So I got a job as a clerk at the New York Post. And 
that was up. Mm. So let's jump right into it. I know you haven't been uh, necessarily covering it day to day, but we want to go through some news of the day. Mm-hmm. And um, Joe Biden has done something that other presidents have not been able to do. I think their talking points have kind of sucked coming out of the White House. I think that the the talking point should be that Joe Biden ended a 20 plus year war, like period. That is that is it. But the withdrawal was chaotic and arguably poorly executed even if people may agree that the policy was right. How do you think President Biden has handled the criticism of his withdrawal? And beyond the dips in his approval ratings, do you think he'll play a political price for the withdrawal in 2022 as it comes around the corner? I mean, that's the the $64 million question. And I I just think it's too soon to know the answer. I think the White House is generally right, but I don't know. I'm just basing it candidly, anecdotally, and looking at polls. I think they are right that most uh, Americans are not that keyed into the granularity of what happened in Afghanistan. They understand the images are bad, but I think that the majority of people in the polling that shows it wanted to leave. So I think that, that it's all taking place against that canvas. And I think the midterms generally tend to be fought more on domestic issues. Um, but I it's do polling think- third right now, actually, behind, uh, I want to say COVID. And I think the economy, the economy in Afghanistan. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, but the economy is usually is usually number one, if not the number one. And in a pandemic, it'll be number two. So that's really yeah. that's all I mean. Um, but certainly people are paying a ton of attention to it right now because it's in the news. I don't know if it will be in the news the same way. A lot of that's going to depend on what happens with the Americans who are still in Afghanistan uh, and, and whether any harm comes to them. This going to be a question of whether there is a resurgence of terrorism abroad or, or if there are fresh threats here. So I think all of those are just known unknowns. In terms of how the White House has handled it, which I think was the other the other half of your question, sure. uh, the I don't. I think that there has been um, they have been very, very defensive, starting from the, the president and his first remarks. I think that his successive two speeches were better on this front. But I think that there was a real defensiveness about, about criticism. And I think it's because, you know, the, the 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 fact is that the president has said some things would be true that did not turn out to be true. And I don't think that it is bad faith for people to look for questions as to why that, or look for answers as to why that was. Um, I think that there are a number of fronts on which they have been dealt a bad hand, but I don't think that the communication around Afghanistan from the White House has been uh, consistent. I mean, they were they were definitely dealt a bad hand. I mean, we forget that. I, I, I'm not sure if Donald Trump actually had the Taliban at Camp David, but he wanted to invite them to Camp David. And you have Pompeo with the picture. And I, and they released 5,000 Taliban combatants, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, and, they, so. and, they, and they did. Some, look, I mean, I think that it's unknowable whether the White House is right that if they had started evacuations earlier than they did, that it would have accelerated what we saw. That statement is somewhat at odds with saying, and we thought the Afghan army would hold for 18 months. So I don't, I think those two things are somewhat in conflict, but I, I, it's not knowable whether they're right or not, but it's certainly a, a legitimate argument, especially after a deal that, to your point, the previous administration put in place that locked them in, if not indefinitely, um, pretty seriously. How do you combat the disinformation and misinformation surrounding an issue like that's as large as Afghanistan. As a reporter, when you look out there and you see false tweets from like a Ted Cruz or a uh, Dan Crenshaw saying that that's a military military helicopter that they're hanging someone out of, which is proven not to be true, or something as simple like uh, Donald Trump Jr. posting that he left the dogs behind, which we know now is also not true. As a journalist, when you see things like that from principles, how do you combat that when you're talking about an issue like Afghanistan or just 
you know, some of the bullshit or, uh, as they might say, inarticulate statements coming out of the White House? I think that uh, there is a difference between I think I I think that they are different. They're they're in different buckets. I do think that things. However, I I will say the words of a president matter and they don't only matter when it's Donald Trump. So I do think that what Joe Biden says matters. But that said, I think that when you are seeing things like the helicopter, which has now been debunked over and over again as a, as a hanging, which is what it was described. And yet people are continuing to use it because they like the way it looks. That sort of is the definition of, of how Trump has redefined public facing messaging uh, for Republicans. And as a reporter, I think we've been facing a, the same challenge, but it's just even more sped up, which I can't believe I'm saying over the last six years, uh, which is, are you actually especially on Twitter. So in news articles, it's extremely important to debunk this stuff, right? In news articles, it is important if we are addressing these things to have proper context, to frame them correctly, to make, and by framing them, I just mean, don't just repeat it as if it's a fact Correct. and then leave it alone. I think where we all get in trouble, I know I do, is figuring out, you know, whether Twitter is a help or a, or a hindrance um, in terms of stopping misinformation, because when you're addressing it, you're also spreading it to your self-selected audience. And I think that there are times where I have thought that I am, you know, addressing something that I think should be addressed and that all it does is just kind of push it around. And so because we have these, these media and, and, and I have regretted it because we have these sort of siloed media ecosystems now um, it's like, they're not talking to each other. And I don't know how much us doing that on Twitter actually matters. I do think doing it for what is ultimately a broader audience in our, in our news outlets is important. Let me ask you one more question about Afghanistan before we move forward to what has happened this week under the cover of darkness with the Supreme Court. But uh, Joe Biden said this decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending our era of major military operations to remake other countries. So are we entering a new era of American foreign policy where we're out of the nation building business? And if so, what does that ultimately mean for our foreign policy? And hot damn, when did everybody predict that Joe Biden and Donald Trump would have the same military philosophy? It's pretty interesting. There is a there is a story to be done about the areas of policy that have been a through line between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And it has fallen actually most closely in terms of Afghanistan and the withdrawal and and some aspects of China policy. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, but in terms of redefining how the U.S. sees its mission, it's certainly a redefinition since 9-11. I think that the U.S., has had something of a schizophrenic view of its own foreign policy over many decades before that. But I do think that Biden, at least in, in words, is, is bringing in a new era. I don't know what it means long term. I think some of it will matter as to whether Biden is a one term or a two term president. Uh, that'll impact what he can do. But I do think that just after the country's longest war with such an undefined mission, after the initial, re- the initial stated mission for going in, I think the country's appetite for a trillion, two trillion, two something trillion dollar war that cost 2,400 service members lives and tens of thousands of Afghan lives. Uh, I think the appetite for trying to do something similar is pretty small. Uh, let's talk about By everybody court, court. except for the defense industry, which is a whole other thing. Yes. And there are some of our friends in, in media who uh, I believe are a little bit more hawkish than I think I knew. Uh and that's that is showing through. 
I think it's possible. Look, I think that because I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of weeks, I think that as we have we all, but I think that um, I think it is possible to be critical of aspects of the withdrawal without that meaning that and how it, and how it went without that meaning that you're arguing you know, for a permanent troop presence. Right. I, I think, well, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I just think that you have to follow up. If you ask some, if you say, you know, the withdrawal was terrible, I think that it's fair for the person who you're asking that question to say, what would have been or, better? What would have been better? Um, <laughs> or do we stay for another 20 years? Like, I right. think that's a fair retort. No, I think it is. I think that, I think if, if the discussion is about the withdrawal was bad because we should have kept a troop presence, I'm looking at the aspect, and I mentioned this before, that's about, and I'm speaking for myself. I know there's a lot, there are a lot of people who are legitimately also arguing that there should have been an ongoing troop presence. And, you know, the president um, made very clear where he stood on this and he stuck by that. And to your point, that's not a small thing given the politics of it. Um, But I do think that there are people who are concerned about refugees and concerned about SIV uh, visa applicants who were worried about how the, you know, there, there were a lot of human rights groups who were urging the administration to do evacuations earlier. And I understand what the administration's logic was, but I think those are still legitimate questions to raise that don't necessarily also then follow through on. And that means you want to keep troops forever. That's all. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Can we talk about what happened this week under the cover of darkness? Because I just want to, I want to, it was bothering my spirit last night, Mm -hmm. how we saw the first true full frontal attack on Roe v. Wade be successful. 
I look at this as two things and my friends on the left, they're going to be pissed at me like they always are because I firmly, I'm not a Rahm Emanuel fan. I want to go, if I can go speak against his nomination, I will. But uh, Rahm Emanuel started this thing where Dems really don't care about the courts and the judiciary. We paid the price with Donald Trump, who actually, and Mitch McConnell, who did care about the courts and the judiciary. Uh, What we saw with uh, this ruling on uh, the Texas abortion ban, six-week abortion ban, and giving standing to anyone in the country that can now sue women or uh, practitioners, et cetera, is that one of the lasting impacts of Trump's legacy? And do you see this being an issue going forward that maybe Dems now will take Brian Fallon's advice and actually talk about it? I don't know that you're going to see Dems talk about the judiciary more. I think that, um, although I do think that the Biden administration has actually tried to move faster on filling open seats. Uh, and I, and I do think they are, they are heating it. It's not getting as much attention, um, for a couple of reasons. And they've been diverse as well. Yes. As the, as the, as the, it's not getting as much attention as the Trump, um, appointments did and confirmations did, but they are, they are trying to do it at a brisk pace in terms of, where I think the fight will be based, it's going to be, I think, less on, on the judiciary and more on abortion uh, and sort of more abortion and Roe v. Wade centric, as if that's taking place separately from the courts, which it obviously isn't. But I do think that's where the, the energy will be around heading into the midterms. Uh, it's a pretty dramatic thing that happened last yeah. night. That law is, um, is, a, is, a, is a seismic shift. Uh, and I think that you can attribute the impetus behind it to part of this ongoing sort of, you know, recoil of the gun that we have seen. I'm using that metaphorically, obviously, but, you know, politics, as you know, better than anybody are about, you know, um, uh, reaction and, and action and the reaction to an election that Donald Trump did not really lose by that much in a handful of states has been a huge push for changing voting eligibility at the state level. Um, And then I think that there has been more energy for bills like this as a, as a corollary. And the Supreme court didn't take this bill up for those of you who don't know, but they, their inaction was an action. Um, The not, the not taking it up is a reflection of the fact that it's now a pretty conservative bench. So, um, so yes, I do think that you are seeing the, you know, the whole argument from people who have said, that there's hysteria around the concerns around Roe v. Wade because the court's never going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I they think you're, you, I think you're right. talking about Susan Collins, but yes. I'm, well, <laughs> I'm talking, I'm talking about a couple of people, but I mean, <laughs> Collins is certainly one of the people who people talk about, um, you know, sometimes things happen just by, by inaction. So, you know, I, I also, what's been driving me, I just kind of, it doesn't drive me crazy anymore because I, maybe I'm just too jaded by our political reality now, how a lot of my friends are talking about how we must be concerned about the plight of Afghan women and then are right. very, very vocal about supporting this Texas bill. I just don't, don't find those uh, to be intellectually honest uh, sentiments. So uh, one of the things that Biden has done, and uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was his domestic agenda. Um, there's a $3.5 trillion social spending plan and a $1.9 trillion infrastructure package. So we're talking about $5 trillion over five years being spent in America. Does Biden, does he actually get what he wants here? Because he's actually going to have his cake and eat it too. And why haven't we seen more framing, I guess, from the reporting around these investments as a potentially generational investments that they are talking New Deal era-esque levels of domestic spending? 
Um, I think that you have seen less framing. I think you started to see some of that framing um, a couple of months ago, and I think it has fallen off. Um, I can't give you a great reason why I think it's falling off, although I think some of it is, um, frankly, in order to get some of the Republican votes they need, they need to not be talking about what a change in generational spending this is. Um, because <laughs> yeah. they can't sell it the way they want to sell it that way to get the votes they want and, and some moderate Dems. But it look, it, these bills are on, a, as you know, a pretty narrow path in order to, to get passed. Um, and the, the runway is not that long. So I think that the White House is trying to be as careful as they can. And they're they're in a tough spot. I mean, the the everything that just happened with the moderates pushing back against Pelosi is a reminder of how narrow the majority is in the House. And in the Senate, they're basically looking toward mansion and cinema and really cinema. So um, it, it all for all of the noise, it all it all comes down to that. I mean, and this was uh, that's actually a, this is why you're so good on TV, because that was a natural segue to my next question. Can you help? <laughs> can you help people as someone who covers Washington? Can you help us understand uh, the group of Senate Democrats not just Kirsten Cinema, uh, but Joe Man, not just Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, but the testers of the world and some of the others who haven't been as vocal, Mark Warner, et cetera, who are protecting the filibuster and as a result are effectively kind of vetoing the justice agenda that many of us voted. You know, it, it's cool. We've withdrew from Afghanistan. We've been able to withdraw from Afghanistan, a 20 year war. Uh, we've been able to pass five trillion dollars worth of health care, but we haven't been able to pass voting rights or criminal justice reform. I mean, uh, that. So I guess so I guess I would say I would answer that in two ways. I think that, number one, I think that you have a bunch of Senate institutionalists who also, in some cases, have concerns in their specific states from independent Democrats, moderate Democrats, to the extent that, that you know, they're they are there, more centrist Republicans. The corollary is and, and this has also been a source of consternation from some members of your party is that the White House is not making a bigger push either on voting rights or on the filibuster. And they obviously go hand in hand. But I think it's for, frankly, the same reason. I think that Joe Biden is an institutionalist. Uh, I think that Biden thinks it would be a radical move. And so I think that until um, they can come to some consensus as to why this is a good thing, um, uh, <laughs> We won't win any more elections. That's well, what. <laughs> I think that I think that there is a design. We are in. We were just talking about the narrow majorities uh, in both the Senate and the House, which obviously Democrats are very concerned are going to become minorities in the next. In both cases, in the next. Uh, uh, in the next midterm, um, everything is so fractured right now that I think the argument that people make Biden about why he should make a change is it's fractured anyway. So, you know, you're, you're sticking to a system that's kind of antiquated and, and doesn't work anymore. And I think that that is the same argument that people make to the warners of the world um, and the testers of the world. I think that there is a disconnect between the sort of 30,000 feet view of our politics and the more local one that some of these senators are experiencing. Before I get, let you get out of here, I got to ask you some more rapid fire type questions. Oh, what happened? What happens in 2022? Oh, you cover on. this closer than anybody else. What happened? <laughs> Talk to me about 2022. Hey, what happens in the House and the Senate? And, and as we as you see, what, what are the trends telling you in, from your from your journalistic perch? My journalistic perch. Um, you know, Democrats I'm talking to are not electorally hopeful about holding the House. Um, yeah. That's uh that's the that's that's my that's my deep insight. Uh, they're feeling more hopeful about holding the Senate. Uh, they are concerned 
to your question at the top about whether Afghanistan is going to uh, have a lingering impact. And they acknowledge they just don't know that the that the White House, you know, spin on the ball makes a lot of assumptions that may not come to pass. Um, they they're they're concerned. They're concerned, and then they're concerned that you know Trump or a Trump like figure will will win in twenty twenty four, and then it'll be United Republican government again. Yeah, the biggest advantage and disadvantage that the Republican Party has is Donald Trump because yes, for the turnout machine that he Absolutely. is for both turn- sides, though, right? Yeah, but I, yeah. but but I mean the 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 other it's not just for him though, but you know his party actually does it recruits Todd Aiken. You know, what's her name? I'm not a witch. Catherine O'Donnell, I think, was her name. Uh, it was uh, Christina. Christine, Christine O'Donnell. Yeah, I'm, not a witch, I'm you. Yeah. Yeah. And and now they have Herschel Walker, which yes. is a godsend to Democrats in Georgia. Who, like, who Trump like, is pushing? Who Trump I, is exactly? Pushing. I mean, you, but, but to your to, just to just to asterisk your point about the Republican Party, Senate Republicans, you know, who are not allied with Donald Trump. Do not want Herschel Walker. Like they, they <laughs> but they don't, but they won't say anything either. Now you know, they won't say anything. You know, other than sort of the periodic on Twitter. Whoa, look at this latest Oppo drop against Herschel Walker. <laughs> like, but yeah, but that's, we, that's the yeah. funny part is I want everyone to know. Like we don't, we're not even dropping opposition research against Herschel Walker yet. That's yeah. other Republicans. So <laughs> like you guys have have fun with that. All right, uh, what's the latest on the Trump investigations? Will Donald Trump go to jail? What is, what is all what is all of this that's happening in New York? What's the outcome of this going to be, if anything? Um, at the moment, the outcome is going to be that, uh, you know, a, a an older man who works for Donald Trump for the last 40 years, Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump board, uh, could end up going to jail. There are one or maybe two other executives who could get indicted. Uh, at the moment, I have heard nothing about a looming Donald Trump indictment, but I don't think we would know until closer to the end of the year. I do think that Cy Vance, the outgoing Manhattan DA, wants to make that charging decision. So I think that we would know. I don't think it's impossible that if Vance decides not to charge, that Alvin Bragg, the incoming DA, decides to look at it again. Most legal experts I talk to, even ones who are do not like Donald Trump at all, have questions about the um the weight of this case and, and, and what it'll do. So no, I, I thought the charges have, against Weissenberg were pretty, pretty slow. I thought they right. were. I, I, mean, I, I think, I think there is a real feeling that, um, that there's a, that Trump will have an effective case to make, that there are politics at play here and Trump will make that case. So. What happens with Rudy Giuliani? Now that's not, next not only what, not only what happens, I can I can ask this question two ways. What happens to Rudy Giuliani to Rudy and what Giuliani? happened to Rudy Giuliani? So I will tell you what I think happened to Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and I've talked to a bunch of former Rudy folks about this because I covered his administration when he was mayor. And then I covered his presidential race uh, and have covered him since um, when he look people around him for a long time. Uh, argue that he uh, drinks too much, which is something that showed up in the, you know, people saying this, these things in the in the book that Michael Wolf just did, Landslide. Um, when his childhood best friend and and sort of moral compass, a man named Peter Powers, who was one of his deputy mayors at City Hall for a time, Powers died. I want to say in 2016, maybe it was 2017. But when Powers died, is when Giuliani really started to drift. Um, and then I think Trump just became his whatever. I mean, ticket to relevance 
anchor to some extent. Um, so I think that's what happened. And, and then he went through another divorce. And so that's what happened there. Um, in terms of what happens to him, the STNY and Giuliani's lawyers are still arguing over what should be privileged and what should not be privileged and what was seized from his communications. And so as long as that's going on, there's not going to be a movement in the case on an indictment. But um, there's every indication that that's what they're trying to move toward. What happens in California with this recall? We're going to actually have a special episode with uh, Maeve and Maeve Reston and Kai Young. Excellent. Yeah, to uh, help us help us delve into and understand the recall because I don't I don't understand shit going on in California with this recall. It's the most fascinating thing. You got to check no or yes, and then Larry Elder can wake up and be governor. This is just crazy. So, um, what do you see happening? Uh, so, I try not to make tr- predictions for a variety of reasons, but. <laughs> Um, I think that there are reasons to believe that Newsom will survive this. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, there was, I, was talking, I was just talking to a, a strategist I know out there this morning about this who's really, really smart. And this person was just saying that there was like that one poll, that one public poll kind of freaked people out, but that it'll end up helping Newsom most likely because it'll make voters realize they need to turn out. Low turnout is what could really hurt them. And listen, Newsom is a skilled politician and he will, all you have to do is ask him, he'll, he'll tell you. Um, and the last thing, what does 2024 look like? Are you, does Joe Biden run again? Are there any inclinations that he won't run again? Um, do you have, I, I, I used to believe that you would have a Nikki Haley versus Kamala Harris race in 2024, but I think Nikki has, has not done a good job coddling the Trump base. And so it looks like a Ron DeSantis or something like that versus a Kamala Harris in 24, 28. What do you see happening? Uh, I think that in 2024, um, I think Joe Biden still plans to run again. Uh, and I think that that's a very, very long ways away. Um, <laughs> we, we know. <laughs> that's a, but, um, but that at the moment is my operating assumption is that President Biden is seeking a second term. If he chooses not to for some reason, then I think it's a I think it will be something of a jump ball, but I think it'll be also very hard to argue uh, that the first female of color VP should not be seen as a front runner. So, yeah, there's also a secretary of transportation down there lingering, waiting for his turn. He's been doing a great job in the administration, too. But I want to say thank you, Maggie, for spending some time with me today. We covered a lot pretty quickly, (laughs) uh, but it was fun. So thank you for taking some time with me today. Thanks for having me. All right. Let me know if you need some help on that book. I'm I'm here. I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Oh, man. That was a dope episode, man. I, I am very thankful for Maggie's friendship and her intellect and her brilliance and her wit as well. Um, but before I let you go, I got to talk about Cam Newton. In case you missed it, the New England Patriots announced they're releasing former NFL MVP quarterback Cameron Newton. The reasons why are threefold. First, Mac Jones actually won the job, and he closed the performance gap against Cam pretty quick. Second, it's hard to manage a locker room as the backup quarterback, so there's that. And third, and probably most importantly, Cam Newton ain't vaccinated, so that caused a lot of turmoil on the team. How the hell are you going to be the leader of the team and you ain't vaccinated? So it's obvious that you'd rather prefer to have a vaccinated quarterback to an unvaccinated one because you don't want them missing games for reasons that are obviously preventable. And given the possibility of long-term consequences of COVID and its impact on your respiratory system, you want to make sure that your quarterback is at least somewhat inoculated from, again, a preventable risk here. Newton already had to miss some practices this season because of his unvaccinated status. Imagine going down the wire 
um, of your season, needing to win a playoff game, and Cam Newton can't because he he can't even perform because he's unvaccinated. In short, an unvaccinated player is an unreliable player, and that person can't lead your franchise or be the face of it. Yet another lesson here that underscores the importance of getting vaccinated, particularly for NFL players. Teams and organizations equate reliability and being a good teammate with being vaccinated. I think there's a good lesson here for all of us. Get vaccinated. And that's that on that. We'll see you all, all on Monday. Okay.